Well, one of the things that I really like about uh, the house that we now live in over in Danville is the pond that is in our backyard. It's just one of those water runoff ponds that you find in most new neighborhoods. Uh, but this one's a pretty big one, and it makes for a nice view. Now, this pond that's in our backyard, it's home to some geese. It's also home to some ducks. Uh, the ducks are always there. The geese, they tend to come and go throughout the day. I don't really care too much for the geese, but I do like the ducks. And so my favorite times of the day are when the ducks are in the pond by themselves. I don't know why, but I just find it fascinating to watch them swim around and to, to listen to them quack at one another. Well, the other day, I was cleaning up after dinner uh, in the kitchen, looked out the back window, and it was one of those times when just the ducks were there. And so I started watching them in the pond, and there's about 15 or 20 of them at the pond at this particular time. And they were kind of spread out all over the place. There were a few on this side of the pond, a few in the middle, a few on the other side. And they were just kind of swimming around, minding their own business. And then I saw something come out of the woods. Okay, there's some woods right behind the pond. And as I was watching the ducks, I saw a coyote come out of the woods. Uh, and this coyote came right up to the edge of the pond, and he was eyeing up the ducks. Now, I wasn't the only one who noticed the coyote, okay? The ducks noticed the coyote, too. Uh, as soon as one of them noticed the coyote come out of the woods, uh, he or she must have sent some kind of signal to all of the other ducks in the pond because immediately they all converged and formed a big huddle. Uh, they all gathered together in a big huddle about seven or eight feet in front of the coyote. They were still in the water, but about seven or eight feet from where the coyote was standing. Every single duck joined in the huddle. And then for like the next five minutes, the ducks and the coyote had a staring contest. Uh, the coyote stared at the ducks and the ducks stared back at the coyote. Neither one moved, neither one took the eye off the other. Now the suspense had me riveted at this point, okay? Uh, I wanted to see what was gonna happen. Now of course I was rooting for the ducks, right? Uh, I was hoping that they would win, and they did. After about five minutes of staring at each other, the coyote finally turned around and slinked back into the woods. And then the ducks dispersed and went back to minding their own business. But you know, for the next two or three hours, those ducks would not stop quacking. Um, I've never heard them so vocal before as I did after that incident. And so I'd like to think that they were singing some kind of song of praise to God for giving them the victory that day. But you know, as I watched this whole showdown between the coyote and the ducks play out, I was reminded of something. I was reminded of just how important the concept of community is in God's design for his creation. You see, God designed ducks to live in community. Ducks need to live in community. They need to live in community not only to survive, but also to thrive. And you know, the same is true for Christians. God has called us as Christians to live together in community. We need to live together in community. Not only so that we can survive the attacks of our spiritual enemy, the devil, but also to thrive and to experience the fullness of life that God intends for us. Now, some Christians, they think they can live the Christian life all on their own. And that mindset probably comes from our culture that's very individualistic. And so some Christians, they think they can live out their faith. They think they can follow Christ entirely on their own. But the reality is you cannot live the Christian life on your own. At least, if you're not, at least if you want to be within God's will and experience the fullness of life that he intends for us. 
you know, when you read through the New Testament, you'll see very quickly that God has called us to live in community. That community is at the core of God's plan for the Christian life. You know, by some counts, there are 59 one another commands in the New Testament. Love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, pray for one another. And that list goes on and on and on. And you can't obey any of those one another commands unless you're in community. And we've talked about spiritual gifts already as we've been looking at the book of Acts. And I told you there are places in the New Testament where it will lift some of those gifts that the Holy Spirit might give you when you become a follower of Christ. And if you look at those lists, every one of those gifts can only be used in the context of community. If the Holy Spirit gives you the gift of teaching, you need a community of people to teach. If he gives you the gift of mercy, there needs to be a community of people that you can show mercy to. If you have the gift of giving, there needs to be a community that you give to. So community is at the core of God's plan for Christians. When we read through the New Testament, we cannot come to any other conclusion. And so God's plan, God's will is for every single Christian to immerse him or herself in the life of a community of believers. And that community of believers is known as a local church. Now we've seen already in the book of Acts that the church was born 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem when God sent the Holy Spirit to fill the believers who were there. And when God sent his spirit and filled those believers, uh, he gifted them with the ability to speak in foreign languages. And, and the believers who were there at the time, they went out and started proclaiming the mighty works of God in, in these languages that they had never studied or learned before. And we saw just last week how some of the people who heard them accused them of being drunk. And that's when Peter stood up and pointed them to Jesus after bearing the bad news that they had sinned against God and giving them the good news that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, Peter called them to call on the name of Jesus so that they would be saved from their sin. And when Peter called for that commitment, 3,000 people responded. 3,000 people repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ and decided to follow him. And the group of believers, the church in Jerusalem, grew on that day from 120 to 3,120. Now, what did this church do? What kinds of activities did this church engage in? How did this church in Jerusalem seek to honor God? Well, we're going to look at this church today, and we're going to try to answer those questions. So as we continue our study in the book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 2 today, finishing up chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to take it out and open it up to Acts chapter 2. And if you don't have your own copy of the Bible, I would encourage you to see me after the service. I can get you one so that you can take it and read it. Here at City View, our practice is to study through books of the Bible. So you're going to want to have a copy for yourself, not only to follow along on Sunday mornings, but also to take home and read and study throughout the week. So like I said, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 42 through 47. And you can follow along as Luke tells us about this church in Jerusalem and how it honored God. Now, if you're able, would you please stand as I read God's holy and inspired word for us this morning? So this is Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. And here's what the scriptures say. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning and for the opportunity to read it and to discuss it. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and open our hearts and our minds. And Lord, I pray that you would show us how we can be a church that honors you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. You may be seated. So as we look at this passage of scripture at the end of Acts chapter 2, the main point that I want to make today is going to be this. Because God calls Christians to live in community, together we must cultivate the characteristics of a God-honoring church. Okay, Because God calls Christians to live in community, together we must cultivate the characteristics of a God-honoring church. Now this Jerusalem church, this church that we just read about in Acts chapter 2, it was a God-honoring church. That's how Luke presents it to us. In fact, in some ways, Luke presents the Jerusalem church to us as as an ideal that we should seek to emulate. Now, what was it about this early church that made it a God-honoring church? What characteristics of this church in particular should we seek to emulate today? Well, I'm going to point out six characteristics for you. Every church today that wants to honor God they should seek to cultivate these six characteristics. And by the way, when I talk about a church today, I'm not talking about a building. Okay, in English, we often use the word church to refer to a building. But in the Bible, the Greek word that's used for church never refers to a building. It always refers to a group of believers, either to the the group of all believers around the world or to a group of believers who live and worship in a local area. And so when I say the word church today, I'm using it in that sense as a, as, as a reference to a group of believers in a local area who worship together. So what are the six characteristics that a local church should cultivate if it wants to be a God-honoring church? Well, the first one is this. Okay, the first one is this. A God-honoring church will value God's word. A God-honoring church will value God's word. Now, the early church, the church that we just read about in Jerusalem, they valued God's word. And we know that they valued God's word because Luke tells us in verse 42 that the people in this church were devoted to the apostles' teaching. In verse 42, Luke says, And they, talking about the 3,120 believers there in Jerusalem, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what were the apostles' teaching? Luke doesn't tell us specifically what the apostles were teaching, but I think based on some other passages in the New Testament, we can figure out what the apostles would have been teaching. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, in the verses that John read for us earlier, Jesus told his apostles, when he met with them on top of that mountain, he told them right before he ascended into heaven to go out and make disciples, to baptize them, and then to teach them to observe all that he had commanded them. Now, we've already seen in the book of Acts that the apostles were doing exactly what Jesus had commanded them to do. Peter made disciples. When he got up in front of that crowd and pointed people to Jesus, he made disciples. And when 3,000 of those people decided to follow Jesus, Peter told them they should get baptized. And they did get baptized. 
They got baptized to show, to publicly show that they were now followers of Jesus. And now Peter and the apostles, what do we see them doing? They're teaching the new believers. So just as Jesus told them to make disciples, baptize, and teach, that's what we see the apostles doing now. And so what they would have been teaching these new believers is everything that Jesus had taught them. So that means the apostles would have been teaching these new believers about the Old Testament and what it teaches us about God and how it points us to Jesus. And the apostles would have been teaching the new believers about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and, and how that fulfills the Old Testament prophecies and, of course, how his sacrifice pays for our sins. The apostles, they would have been teaching the new believers about the kingdom of God and how, how Jesus came to establish it and how he had also promised to, to come back in the future to, to consummate it. And then the apostles would have been teaching these new believers how to share their faith and how to make more disciples. Now, eventually, some of the apostles wrote down what they were teaching. And we have the books that they wrote in our Bibles today. For example, Matthew, he was one of the apostles. He wrote a gospel that teaches us that Jesus is the Messiah and the King of God's kingdom. And then there was another apostle named John. He wrote a gospel. He also wrote three letters. And they, and they teach us that Jesus is the Son of God who is both fully divine and fully human. John also wrote a book called Revelation that teaches us about Jesus' return. And then there's Peter, the Apostle Peter. He wrote a couple of letters that are in our New Testament. And they teach us how we can live in the face of opposition. Now, sometimes people ask me, they say, how, 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 did, the, how did the early church know which books should be included in the New Testament and which ones should be left out? That's a question I hear from time to time. After all, I mean, there was a lot of books that were being written about Jesus, some of them are in our New Testament, and some of them are not. So why did some books make the cut, but not others? Well, there were several criteria that the early church used to establish which books would be included in our New Testaments and which ones would not. First and foremost, to be included in the New Testament, a book had to be written by an apostle or by someone that was very closely associated with an apostle. Okay, so for example, Mark. We have the Gospel of Mark in our New Testament. Mark wasn't an apostle, but he was closely associated with the apostle Peter. And Mark would have been writing down what Peter was teaching as, as Mark hung around him and followed him around and heard what Peter was saying to others about Jesus. If you remember the word apostle, the way that Luke uses it here in the book of Acts, is he's using it to refer to someone who, who was not only an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but also as a reference to someone who was given special authority by Jesus. And that special authority was to speak and to write God's words for us. And so I say all of this to tell you today that the apostles' teaching has been captured for us in our New Testaments. And so what we have here in the New Testament, what we have in the Old Testament as well, is God's word. The Bible is God's word to us. And a God-honoring church will value God's word. Now, the God-honoring church in Jerusalem, they valued God's word. Like I said, we know it because they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to God's word. Now, what does that word devoted really mean? Okay, well, it means, the word devoted that's used in verse 42, it means that they were doing this with consistency, with regularity, 
So they were studying the apostles' teaching consistently with regularity, with steadfastness and perseverance. That's what that word devoted means. And so when Luke tells us that these believers in the early church were devoted to the apostles' teaching, he's telling us that they were constantly studying God's word. And they were doing this, and they stuck with this discipline, even when it wasn't easy or convenient for them to do so. I suspect that many of you are familiar with a ministry known as Compassion International. Compassion International is a ministry where, where people can sponsor a child and their sponsor, uh, sponsorship will help provide that child with, with the basic necessities in life and also with a Christ-centered education. Well, I was on the uh, Compassion International website the other day and I came across an article about a single, a single father in Brazil who was named DeMaio. And DeMaio's wife, she walked out on him one day and left him to raise their two young sons all on his own. Now, thankfully, the two boys uh, are sponsored in the Compassion program, and so they get to go to the Compassion Center and receive their, their schooling and their education there. And whenever they go to school, DeMaio goes to work at a farm. And here's what DeMaio says about his work on the farm. He says, every day, every day I leave my home before the sun comes up and go out into the fields, and there I plant beans and rice and corn. And then I try to sell at the market. And if something is left, I take that home. It's a hard job. The title of the article was A Devoted Father and His Boys. And from what I read about DeMaio, I think that's, I think that's an accurate title. DeMaio really wants to provide for his children. So he's devoted to his work on the farm. Do you hear what he said? He said, every day, every day I go to the farm. That's regularity and consistency. And he said it's a hard job. It's not easy, but he sticks with it. That's steadfastness and that's perseverance. Regularity and consistency, steadfastness and perseverance, that's what it means to be devoted. And so just as DeMaio is devoted to his work on that farm so that he can provide for his children, the believers in the early church, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to God's word so that they could grow as followers of Jesus. They learned from the apostles with regularity and with consistency. And they kept at it with steadfastness and perseverance. And they did that because they valued God's word. Now, if you value God's word, then I would encourage you to devote yourself to studying God's word. And maybe you do value God's word, but you're just not sure how you can devote yourself to studying it. So let me just give you a few suggestions of how you can devote yourself to studying God's Word here at City View. First and foremost, you can devote yourself to studying God's Word by, by listening to the sermon each week. You can take notes on it and look back over those and meditate on them throughout the week. Compare what I say to what's in the Bible to ensure that it lines up. You can devote yourself to studying God's Word by, by participating in one of our city groups where God's Word is taught and discussed. And you know, there's another way you can devote yourself to the study of God's Word here. You can check a book out of our library, and you can take it home and read it. And that'll help you come to a better understanding of what God has said in His Word. You might not know it, but we have a library right out here for you to use, to take books, to learn, and to grow. These are just some of the ways that you can devote yourself to studying God's Word here at this church. That's what a God-honoring church does. They value God's Word. Now, the second characteristic of a God-honoring church that I want to point out to you is this. 
A God-honoring church will foster fellowship. Foster fellowship. Because you see, in verse 42, not only were these believers in the early church devoted to the apostles' teaching, Luke tells us they were also devoted to fellowship. That's what he says in verse 42. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now that word fellowship, it means, it means association. It means a close relationship. Think of partnership in the fullest sense of that word. That's fellowship. Now true fellowship among Christians, it involves more than just hanging out and eating together. True fellowship among Christians involves living out our faith in Christ together. Now what does that look like? What does it look like to live out our faith in Christ together? Well, the second half of verse 42 gives us some insight. Luke tells us that the fellowship in the early church was seen in the breaking of bread and in the prayers. And so Luke, he highlights two ways that the, the believers in the early church were devoting themselves to fellowship. The breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the breaking of bread, this most likely refers to a, a kind of meal that was called an agape meal or a love feast. The book of Jude that's in our New Testament, it talks about this. Okay, it talks about this agape meal or this love feast. It was, it was basically a time where the believers would come together and share a meal together. And as a part of that meal, they would also observe the Lord's Supper. So this, uh, this agape meal, this, this love feast, it was dinner plus the Lord's Supper. And then the prayers that Luke mentions, most likely this, this would refer to times of corporate prayer. Times when the believers gathered together to pray with one another. In a God-honoring church, the people will do those things. They will gather regularly to live out their faith in Christ. They will foster fellowship and devote themselves to it. Now, how can you foster fellowship here at City View? Well, you can have lunch or dinner with someone, and as you eat, discuss what God is doing in your lives. Discuss what he's been teaching you from his word. You can foster fellowship here at City View Church by by finding someone that you can get together with or, or even just call on the phone maybe once a week to, to talk about what's going on in your life and then to pray with one another. Or you can just organize some occasions for people in this church to, to get together, to strengthen relationships with the Lord and with each other. Some of you have done that recently and some of you are planning those events right now. I commend you for that. Because a God-honoring church will foster fellowship. And now there's a third characteristic of a God-honoring church that we see here in this passage that I read. It's this. A God-honoring church will impact others. A God-honoring church will impact others. And what I mean by that is a God-honoring church is going to impact the lives of people in the city or in the town in which it's located. And they're going to impact those lives in such a way that the people will be left in awe of who God is. That's what we see going on here with the Jerusalem church. We see it in verse 43. In verse 43, Luke says, Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Every soul. That phrase there refers primarily to those who were not a part of the Christian community. It refers primarily to the unbelievers and the unchurched who were living in Jerusalem at that time. 
And so when Luke says that awe came upon every soul, he's telling us that, that the others who were in the city noticed what God was doing through the people in this church and what they saw moved them to have a deep respect for who God is. That's what awe refers to. It means seeing what's going on and being so amazed at what God is doing that you're moved to have this deep, abiding respect for him. So what was God doing through the Jerusalem church that left the people in that city in awe of him? Well, in the second half of verse 43, it says that God was doing miracles through the apostles. These are the wonders and signs that Luke mentions. And next week, when we start to move into chapter 3, we're going to see an example of one of those wonders and signs, one of those miracles that God did through the apostles that just left the people in awe. Now, based on 40, verse 43, I think it's safe to say, I think it's safe to say this about the Jerusalem church. If the Jerusalem church just suddenly disappeared, just suddenly vanished, I think it's safe to say that it would not have taken very long for the people in Jerusalem to notice that they were gone. Okay, I think, I think the people in Jerusalem would have noticed pretty quickly if that church was gone because the people in that church were having an impact on that city. Back in 2016, there was this uh, 69-year-old guy in Spain. His name was Joaquin Garcia. Uh, he worked in the mayor's office, and he was fined $30,000 when some government officials discovered that he didn't show up for work for six years. After working for 14 years in the mayor's office, Mr. Garcia decided that he didn't want to show up for work anymore. And so he started staying home. Not so that he could work remotely. He started staying home so that he could just sit on his couch and read philosophy books all day. Now, ironically, Mr. Garcia's six years absence, this is hilarious. Mr. Garcia's six years absence was discovered when the deputy mayor decided to give him an award for 20 years of loyal and dedicated service. And he couldn't find him. <laughs> now, how is it possible? I mean, how is it possible that someone could skip work for six straight years, and no one noticed that. I think there's really only one explanation. Mr. Garcia must not have been making much of an impact for those 14 years when he was there. Because if he had been making an impact, somebody would have noticed when he was gone. Now, if a church were to suddenly disappear, it shouldn't take six years for the people in that community to realize that the church is gone. It shouldn't take six years for the people in the community to realize that the church is gone because that church should be impacting the community in such a way that the people will know that it's there. Now, you don't have to do miracles like, like the apostles were doing to impact the people in this area. You, you can impact the people in this area simply by serving them in the name of Jesus. And here at City View Church, even right now during the month of October, there are several opportunities for you to impact the people in this area. In two weeks, we have our fall festival. That's going to be an opportunity to impact the lives of a lot of people who live in this community. And all throughout the month, you can contribute to our collection for the LBS Community Center. You can provide some food that's going to impact the lives of people in this area. See, we can impact the lives of people in this area. 
We've got opportunities to do that right now. And then I want you to stay tuned. I want you to get ready. Because yesterday at our leadership retreat, our ministry leaders retreat, we started making plans to provide you with even more opportunities to impact the lives of people, not only in this city, but also in the nations. So stay tuned. You'll hear more about some of those opportunities in the, in the weeks and the months ahead. A God-honoring church will impact the lives of others. Now fourth, the fourth characteristic of a God-honoring church is this. A God-honoring church will maintain unity. A God-honoring church will maintain unity. Okay, we see this in the early church. We see this in the early church in Jerusalem, that they were unified. And we see it in verses 44 and 46. These verses in particular, they really emphasize the unity amongst the believers in this church. And by the way, this, this, this church, this Jerusalem church, it was a very diverse group of people. Let's just think about the 12 apostles for a minute. Let's think about how diverse they were. So James and John, they were uneducated fishermen. Matthew was a, a tax collector who cheated his own countrymen out of their money. And then you, had, then you had this guy named Simon who was a zealot. That means he came from this radical political party that was known for assassinating government officials. I often wondered how he and Matthew got along. And then there was Peter. He was overconfident. And there was Thomas, who was a doubter. Now, given that much diversity among the 12 apostles, just think about how much there would have been among the 3,000 believers in that church. There would have been people who were single. There would have been people who were married. There would have been people who were younger. There would have been people who were older. There would have been type A personalities, type B personalities, optimists and pessimists, introverts and extroverts. It was a diverse group, but it was a unified group. Now, what unified them? What made this diverse group of people such a unified group? I think it's two things that unified them. Their common faith and their common purpose. So verse 44, it starts off by saying, And all who believed were together. No matter where these people came from, no matter what kind of personality they had, no matter how old they were, no matter what their station in life was, they were unified because they held to a common faith. The members of this church, they believed in the same Jesus. They all called upon his name to be saved from their sins, and they were all committed to following him as Lord. And so as a result, they all received the same Holy Spirit, and they went through the same baptism to declare their faith. And they became a part of the same body of Christ. And they were adopted into the same family, the family of God. And they had the same God as their father. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the Christians in, in Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus, he reminded that diverse group of the unity that should define them. And he reminded them that it was their faith that unified them. Listen to what he said. He said, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's room for Christians to agree to disagree on certain matters. But when it comes to those essential of the faith, when it comes to those doctrines that define who we are, that's what unifies us. We have a common faith. Now, in addition to a common faith, what else will unify a body of believers? is a common purpose. 
In verse 46, Luke tells us that day by day, the believers were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Now, the word together, you, you see it there in verse 44. You also see it in verse 46. In English, it's the same word, but in Greek, it's two different words. The word in verse 44, it means, when it says together, it means being in the same place at the same time. Okay, that's what, that's what the word together there, together in proximity, is one way that we could say that. The word that's used in verse 46, it means something different. It means together in purpose. Literally, the word that's, that's translated together there means having the same fiery passion. And it's used to refer to a group of believers who are caught up in pursuing a goal that is bigger than themselves. And so when Luke tells us in verse 46 that the believers in the early church went to the temple together and that they were breaking bread in their homes together, he's telling us that this, this group of believers was unified and they were unified because they had the same goal. And their goal was to glorify God and to, and to expand God's kingdom by helping others come to faith in Jesus. That was their passion. That's what they lived for. The people in this early church, they were more interested in advancing God's kingdom than they were in advancing their own kingdoms. They were a diverse group. But they accomplished a lot for God. And they accomplished so much for God because they were unified. Unified in a common faith and unified in a common purpose. I don't know if there's any soccer fans in the room, but if there are, then you know that last year, the Los Angeles Football Club, okay, I'm talking soccer here, not American football. So last year, the Los Angeles Football Club, they won the Major League Soccer Championship for the very first time in their existence. It means they won more games, or maybe I should say they won more matches, if I'm going to use soccer vocabulary. They won more matches than any other team in the league during the regular season, and then they went on and marched their way through the playoffs and won the championship. It was a really remarkable season for this team. And the analysts, they will say that what made this season so remarkable wasn't just the fact that they won the championship, but the fact that they played so well because they were the most diverse team in the entire league. Okay, in addition to having players from the United States, this team had players from Colombia, Wales, Ghana, France, Italy, Ecuador, Canada, Argentina, Senegal, Uruguay, Nigeria, Korea, Spain, Switzerland, and Mexico. That's a diverse team. So what made this team so successful? What was the key to their success? Okay, well, the analysts, they all say what made this team so successful was that the players were unified. They were all working towards the same goal. They were all working together to win games. The players on that team were putting the team's goals ahead of their own personal goals. Instead of trying to rack up stats to boost their own status, the players on this team were willing to do whatever it was needed, whatever it took to help the team win. They set aside their personal agendas they set aside cultural differences for the sake of the team. The Los Angeles Football Club was the most diverse team in the league, but they were a unified team. And because they were unified, they were able to accomplish so much. Now, it takes work, it takes work for a team like 
like that to, to maintain its unity over the course of a long season. When you put a bunch of people with sinful natures together, uh, unity is not going to last very long unless some effort is made to maintain it. Conflicts will need to be resolved. Forgiveness will need to be offered. Humility will need to be cultivated. Patience will need to be exercised. The soccer team had to do all those things. They had to do all those things to remain unified. And you know what? A church has to do all those things as well to remain unified. Unity won't last very long in a church unless effort is made to maintain it. That's why the Apostle Paul, going back to what he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he told them to make every effort to maintain their unity. So we've got to do that here at City View. We've got, to, we've got to make sure we do the work to maintain our unity. We're a diverse group. Even just here in this room, we're a diverse group. And we're even more diverse when we include our brothers and sisters who attend the multicultural service. We're a diverse group here at City View, but we're unified by a common faith and a common purpose. And if we want to accomplish much for God, we've got to make sure that we do everything we can to maintain our unity. That's what a God-honoring church does. A God-honoring church maintains unity. And then fifth, a God-honoring church will equip Christians for ministry. That's the fifth characteristic. A God-honoring church will equip Christians for ministry. And we know the church here in Jerusalem, we know they were equipping Christians for ministry because we see ministry taking place. In verse 44, it says, all who believed had all things in common. And verse 45 elaborates on that and says that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So what do we see here? We see the believers in the early church were ministering to one another. And they had to be equipped to do that. And these verses here, they don't describe some sort of, you know, Christian communism where, where people were forced to give up ownership of their property and, and some governing body then decided who got what. No, what these verses describe is Christians taking care of one another. Taking care of one another because they loved one another and they realized that they were a part of the same spiritual family. So when someone in that church fell on hard times... Somebody else in the church who had excess sold some of what they had and voluntarily gave the proceeds to the ones who had need. Nobody forced them to sell their possessions. Nobody forced them to give anything up for the poor. They did it voluntarily. They voluntarily ministered to one another because they loved one another. They were all a part of the same body of Christ. And, and they understood that if one part of the body is suffering, then the entire body suffers. And so they took care of each other. They ministered to one another. And the verb tense that's used here in verse 45, it tells us that this was an ongoing, regular practice, taking care of one another, ministering to one another. This was a part of their, their daily life together. The word minister means to serve. So to minister is to serve. And so if a church is equipping Christians for ministry, then that church is equipping people to serve. There's many ways you can serve here at City View. We've got the children's ministry, the hospitality team, the AV team, the praise team. We've got city group leaders. We've got the outreach team. So many different ways. If God's calling you to serve in one of these ministries, 
or in one of the other ministries that we have here at the church, but you're afraid to say yes to that because, because you're afraid that you won't know what to do, I would tell you this. Don't be afraid because we'll equip you. If you feel that God's calling you to serve in some capacity here at City View, I would tell you, say yes to that call. And know that your leaders here are committed to equipping you to serve in that ministry. We'll equip you. We'll equip you because that's what a God-honoring church does. A God-honoring church will equip Christians for ministry. And then finally, six, the last characteristic I want to mention about a God-honoring church is this. A God-honoring church will worship God in all that they do. A God-honoring church will worship God in all that they do. In verse 46, Luke tells us that day by day, the believers in the early church went to the temple together. And in verse 47, Luke tells us that day by day, they were praising God. The picture that Luke is painting here is, is of a church that worshiped God in all that they did. Sometimes we have the wrong idea of worship. Sometimes we think that worship only takes place in this building on Sunday morning when we're singing songs. That's worship. Absolutely, that's worship. But you know, worship is so much more. We can worship God in so many other ways. Worship takes place when we adore God for who he is. Worship takes place when we submit ourselves to God and obey him. Worship takes place when we serve God out of our love for him. Worship takes place when we thank God for all of the good things that he's given us. Notice in verse 46 that the believers received their food with glad and generous hearts. They worshiped by being thankful for what God had provided them. They worshiped by sharing that with others. Worship is not confined to a particular day of the week, nor is it confined to a particular location. Worship can take place anytime, anywhere. And a God-honoring church will understand that, and a God-honoring church will worship God in all that it does. Now, friends, I've given you six characteristics of a God-honoring church. What I want to do at this time is I want to highlight four of them for you. I want to highlight four of them for you. So there you go. You see it. Notice that the first letter in those four spell out the word view, V-I-E-W. I point that out because these four characteristics that I've highlighted, these are the core values of City View Church. These four core values shape the life and the ministry of what we do here in this church. This is a church that values God's word and a church that seeks to keep it at the center of all that we do. We devote ourselves to the study of God's word. This is a church that is impacting others and is looking for more ways to do that, impacting the people here in this city, but also the people in this nation and the people in this world. This is a church that equips Christians for ministry so that they can serve and use the gifts that God has given them. And this is a church where we seek to worship God in all that we do, to worship God with our lives. Now, the other two characteristics, fostering fellowship and maintaining unity, they're important to this church too. They definitely shape what we do as a church as well, even if they aren't codified in our core values. I want to point this out to you because I want you to know that City View Church is committed to being a God-honoring church. Sadly, there's a lot of churches today that have lost their way. There's a lot of churches that have either discarded or minimized the Bible in their teaching. 
There's a lot of churches today that have, have turned their focus inward and they've stopped impacting the lives of the people around them in the name of Jesus. There's a lot of churches today that are more divided than united. And a lot of churches today have chosen to entertain rather than to worship. Sadly, there's a lot of churches that have lost their way. We can't let that happen to us. Here at City View, we must continuously cultivate these characteristics of a God-honoring church. In 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, God says, I will honor those who honor me. The Jerusalem church honored God. Look at how God honored them. In verse 47, Luke says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't know about you, but that's what I want for City View Church. I want the Lord to add to our number day by day those who are being saved. Is that what you want for this church? If it is, then we've got to do our part. Together, we've got to cultivate these characteristics that honor God. And then we can trust God. We can trust God to add to our number day by day those who are being saved. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you, Lord God, for the church that you've called us, Lord, as followers of Jesus, to, to live together in community, to minister to one another, to equip one another, so that we can impact the lives of those who live around us and even beyond the borders of our own nation. Lord God, I pray that here at City View Church that you would help us to cultivate these characteristics Help us to cultivate these characteristics of a church that honors you. I pray, Lord God, that your word would be at the center of all that we do because your word is truth. You've revealed yourself to us in your word. You've given us instruction in your word on how we can live for you and be in a right relationship with you. So may your word be at the center of all that we do. God, I pray that you would help us to foster fellowship here to live out our lives as followers of Christ together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to maintain our unity. We have a common faith and we have a common purpose here. Our purpose is to worship you in all that we do and to help others come to know the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, why he came, and how he can save them. God, I pray for each and every member of this church to find the way that you've gifted them and called them to serve. And Lord, I pray that if they, if they need someone to come alongside to equip them to serve in that ministry that you're calling them to serve, that they, would, that they would let it be known that you're calling them and that we would be able to come alongside and equip them for that service. Because Lord, to be the church that you've called us to be, we need everybody, we need everybody to be using their gifts for you. God, it's our heart and our desire to worship you in all that we do. You are the great and mighty God. You're the creator. You're the savior. You're the one who sustains us. Lord, everything good that we have, we owe it to you. First and foremost, we, we owe our salvation to you. 
Lord, we, could, we, we didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. But you gave it to us as a gift. And we thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.